And for the rest of us, let's grab our Bibles and we will turn to Revelation chapter 3. As we come to this passage of Scripture about the church of Philadelphia, I'm reminded of a story that I heard when I was just a child in Sunday school. And the story was of the widow woman and two mites. That's the King James Version. Now, full disclosure, until I was probably 12 years old, I thought she gave two mice. I always pictured this lady coming and dropping little lab mice into a collection box. You know the story, right? There was a collection box for the temple, and there were all of these well-dressed men coming in and making a production of their giving and making sure that everybody knew who the big givers were. And they, on the outside, appeared to be just wonderful, truly spiritual people. And then this widow comes in, and all she can manage are two small copper coins. And she takes that and drops it in the box, worshiping God with all that she had. And Jesus' assessment was that those who had given much were giving out of their abundance. But the widow woman came and gave out of her need. A lot of times when we look at churches or people, we look on the outside, don't we? We look and we say, oh, you know, this is a church with a lot of programs and a lot of people, and by all measurements that pastors use, nickels and noses, this church is it. It's the it church. And then we'll look at a smaller work where the church body is faithful and where the Word of God is faithfully given, but yet it's smaller. And we'll look at that church and we'll say, well, this church obviously has problems. There are issues going on here. We look at the outside. God looks at the heart. Now, why does this have anything to do with the church at Philadelphia? When we look at the church at Philadelphia, this was a small church in the smallest of communities. When we look at churches like Ephesus, and a little bit later we'll look at Laodicea, and we look at the church at Thyatira, we look at churches, and, and even the church at Sardis, and, and they're churches that had great reputations. They were busy. As a matter of fact, in those letters, the Lord would run down the list of great things that they were doing. But then... Immediately following those great things they were doing, what would he follow it up with? But I have this against you. We cannot judge a book by its cover, and by the same token, we cannot judge a church by its externals. We have to look at the heart of the people. That's what God uses as a standard for greatness. And that's what we're going to see as we look into this text this morning. The Church of Philadelphia was a church that was on a plane. It was in an earthquake-prone area. It had the same challenges that the other churches listed here in the book of Revelation struggled with. There was a paganism that was rampant. As a matter of fact, Philadelphia was one of the cities that the Greeks had planted in 
foreign soil so that everybody could see how great the Greek culture was. This was Philadelphia's mission, if you will, to share the greatness of Hellenism. But this church faced struggles. As a matter of fact, when we look into the text, we'll see that there was a Jewish community that persecuted them as a church greatly, and the Lord calls attention to that. So, a church like the others that had their struggles, but here's what stands out about the church at Philadelphia, where the other churches have concerns that the Lord shares with them, correction that they need to make. We don't find that with the church at Philadelphia. We find that the Lord gives them encouragement and shares with us commendations, but no corrections. So that's what's so unique about this small church. And that's why as we look at Philadelphia, we're going to look at the faithful church. We're going to see that this is a church where the people had it right, where they were living in the way that God would have them live. Now, as we've done, we're looking at the context of the letter, and we started with the cultural context of Philadelphia. But as we progress through the verse, Philadelphia is just mentioned. The core of the seventh verse that we really want to look at is what it has to say about our Lord. And what it shares with us is this, Christ is holy, true, and sovereign. So let's look at these titles. As we have been looking through these churches, through these letters to these churches by the Lord Jesus Christ, we've seen various attributes of Christ that are highlighted for us. And the ones that are highlighted for the church of Philadelphia are the following. First of all, Jesus is the Holy One. Now, when we think in terms of holy, a lot of us will have differing ideas, differing definitions of what holiness means. When we look at the root meaning of the idea of holiness, what it boils down to is uniqueness, one of a kind. There's none like it. And certainly this is descriptive of God. Holiness is an attribute that really influences every other attribute of God when we think about it. For instance, when God is loving, He is holy in His love in that no one loves like God. When God is true, we find that no one is as truthful as God. He stands alone in uniqueness. So when Jesus claims holiness in this passage, really it's a statement of His own deity that He is God. God alone is holy. He stands alone. And so here is Jesus saying that He is the Holy One. Now, I don't know about you, but I would never refer to myself as the Holy One. If I did, I'm not being very holy because that's pretty arrogant, because I can't back it up. But the Lord Jesus Christ can refer to Himself as the Holy One because He is. He is God. And it's a statement that He is God. His holiness stands out, and we should worship Him as the Holy One. Look at the next designation. Not only does this say these are the words of the Holy One, but it says the one who is true. Now, what does it mean to be true? It means so much more than just telling the truth. When we look at the attribute of truth when it comes to God, we find that truth really refers to, again, the uniqueness of God, 
that he is the standard by which everything else is judged. For instance, let's go back to God's love. God loves in such a way that he is the standard by which every other love is judged. He is the true standard of love, and everything that compares to him is going to pale in significance. Think of it this way. You have a wind-up wristwatch, and you check on your computer, and you find the atomic clock, and you look at your wristwatch, and you say, oh, my wristwatch says that it's three minutes past what the atomic clock says, so the atomic clock really needs to change its setting to match my wind-up wristwatch. No, right? My wristwatch is off because it's not the official clock, the official time. Well, this is what it is with God. God is the official. He is the standard by which everything else is judged. So again, when Jesus says that He is the true one, it's a statement of His deity. It is saying that Jesus is God, and He should be worshipped as such. Now, it's this last one that we want to look at that really stands out when we look at this statement about who God is and who Jesus is. The words of the Holy One, the true one. Now notice this, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut and shut what no, and no one opens. Now here, this is language that is discussing authority, sovereignty, power. When Jesus says this will open, guess what? It opens. If he says this will shut, again, it closes, and no one can open it again. It's power, it's authority. And what's amazing about this passage, this seventh verse, is Jesus is referencing an Old Testament passage of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there was an individual named Eliakim, and Eliakim had taken the authority of managing the palace. He would manage who would have access to David, and he would manage who had access to the treasury. And when this passage describes Eliakim, this is what it says, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of his of honor to his father's house. So this description of Eliakim, this official that was in the kingdom of David, is actually a description of Christ and his role and his ministry here in the book of Revelation. What it's stating is, just as Eliakim gave access to the treasury under King Hezekiah, so Jesus gives us access to the treasury of God, all of the riches of heaven, a relationship and access to the Father. Jesus Christ fulfills this role perfectly and completely. And this is why Jesus could say of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, look at this. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the Jesus that we worship. And these are the words of Jesus as he shares this with the Church of Philadelphia, but actually to Christians of all time. He wants us to grasp this, to understand it. So let's look at the commendations that Christ gives to those who are following faithfully. As we come to verse 8, we find that Jesus commends them 
for some important activities. First of all, he says, I know your works. Now, as we've seen with each one of the churches, Jesus is able to see not only the works that are done, but the motivation behind the works. As human beings, we can't do that, right? We can grossly misinterpret something and read motives where there aren't. Or we can ignore motives where there are definitely some bad motives in play, even though the works are good. Jesus Christ knows the works absolutely, positively. He can see into the hearts of the people. He sees not just the works, but why they do it. And that's because Jesus is judge. He is able to judge the heart, the thoughts, the intentions of man's heart. So he goes on to say this, Behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, this follows the language that we just looked at a little bit earlier, where it says what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And what he's saying to the church at Philadelphia is this, I have set before you an open door. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is, I'm giving you opportunities. In Scripture, when it talks about an open door, several passages of Scripture refer to opportunities to do something. For instance, one is Paul's letter to the Colossians, and he invites them to pray for him. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what the Scripture is talking about there is an opportunity for the gospel. Now, we're not sure exactly what the open door is that Christ is describing here in the book of Revelation, but it would be pretty safe to assume that he's probably talking about open doors for the gospel. Because in most of the passages where open door is referenced in the New Testament, it refers to ministry opportunity, opportunities to share the truth of Jesus Christ. And you know, as I started thinking about this open door idea, I thought about my own life. And I've thought about the times where God made it plain to me that He had opened a door of opportunity for me, and because of fear or because of distraction, I didn't walk through it. I knew good and well that He was opening up an opportunity, but I was afraid. I was comfortable where I was. I didn't want to pursue it, and I missed out. There have been other times where God opens a door of opportunity, and I've walked through it, and I've seen God do some amazing things as a result of walking through that door. And through life experience, this is what I've learned about open doors. When God opens a door, go through it. Don't rationalize it away. Don't talk about it and say, yeah, one of these days I really ought to do this. What our responsibility is as followers of Jesus Christ is to obediently respond to those ministry opportunities that God gives us. And in particular, I think that refers to the gospel. How many of us, and I don't want a show of hands, but how many of us have known, I need to share the gospel with this person? And we don't. For whatever reason, 
we let that opportunity slip by. And then we look at ourselves and we say, wow, did I miss out. But more importantly, this person missed out on the opportunity to hear the gospel. God is the God who opens doors, and God is the God who shuts doors. And let me share this with you. I believe that given opportunities enough to where we try to close the door or don't walk through it, God will discontinue opening doors for us in that way. He opens these doors for the faithful. When we look at the other letters, the Lord Jesus Christ was talking to the other churches about missed opportunities as well. And then he threatened each one of those churches to no longer allow them to continue in their ministry. We need to be people who faithfully walk through the doors that God opens. And that's what we're being called to right here in this passage of Scripture. Something else. When Christ commends the church of Philadelphia, after He promises to set before them an open door which no one is able to shut, He says this, I know that you have but little power and that you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, this is another commendation. They have little power. Now, as I looked at several commentaries on this passage of Scripture, one of the commentaries brought out an interesting idea, and I think it has merit. In Chuck Swindoll's commentary, he shared with his reader the idea that little power could be a reference to the small size of the church at Philadelphia. That they, by all outward standards, look to be a small work. And yet, even in this small work, what did God do? God opened the door for them. He was bringing opportunities for them to share and to serve. And so their responsibility was to walk through that door and to access the strength of God in so doing. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is the Apostle Paul talking about the sustaining grace of our Lord and in the context of this passage, Paul was talking about probably a physical weakness that he was experiencing. Many people believe that it was perhaps blindness or difficulty with his vision. But he asked the Lord to remove it, and then Christ's response to him in verse 9 was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As a believer and as a church... We have to count on the truth of these words. It is not my strength as a believer, it is not our strength as a church that will make us productive. It is the strength of Jesus Christ. And there is a need in all of our hearts to depend upon that strength, to walk through the doors that He opens, to be faithful and to hold on to His Word. This does not come from us gritting our teeth and trying real hard and succeeding in a way that will make everybody notice us and look at us. This comes from dependence. It's recognizing our own weakness and recognizing the strength of the Lord. So Paul's response was, therefore I will boast all the more gladly 
of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Now look at this. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Perhaps our biggest failure as followers of Jesus Christ is an overestimation of ourselves and an underestimation of Him. Christ wants us to be faithful followers, not in our own strength, but in the greatest of dependence, depending on Him who opens what cannot be shut and shuts what cannot be opened, trusting in the Holy One, the One who is true. That is our path to being faithful, and that was the path that the people of the church at Philadelphia were following. But then we come on to something else. After the Lord talks to this church about these commendations, normally we find correction that follows, but not so in this particular passage. Look at verse 9. And notice verse 9 goes on to say this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, let me share this with you. Earlier in the text, he said, Behold, I open a door for you. So does that mean that when God opens a door, there will be no obstacles? Absolutely not. For the church at Philadelphia, there were still obstacles even though God had opened the door. And for all of us, as we seek to be followers of Jesus Christ, we can look and we can say, here are open doors, but that doesn't mean that we just pass through with smooth sailing. There will be obstacles. Now, unfortunately, the passage that we see before us has been used by many to foster anti-Semitic views. When the Jewish community at Philadelphia was called the synagogue of Satan, there are those who read this passage of Scripture, and they attribute that to all synagogues, and they reject Jewish people and say that they have scriptural authority to do so. Nothing could be further from the truth. As I said earlier, anti-Semitic views are not godly views. God loves the Jewish people, and God wants us to love the Jewish people too. Salvation comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we need to bear that in mind. But what he was talking about in this passage was a specific situation in this specific town. In Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia was finding it difficult to follow because of persecution. You see, from the Jewish perspective in the first century, this established community that was in Philadelphia viewed Christianity as a cult. It was an offshoot of Judaism where their leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a false teacher in their estimation, okay? As a result, they cast the true Messiah, Jesus, as something that He was not. And therefore, they felt justified in persecuting any of the followers of Jesus. 
What the Word of God is telling us in this text, though, is that we have to take the long view when it comes to persecution. In our culture, we're probably not going to be persecuted by a synagogue, right? But there are plenty of others who love to persecute us. They love to poke fun at our beliefs. They like to reject us because of our moral stands. They're going to persecute us in one way or another. And as believers, we have to understand that those who try to crush the Word of Christ and the work of Christ are actually fulfilling the role of Satan. What is Satan's plan? To go against the work of God and the spread of the gospel. He does it through accusation. He does it through trying to discourage the Christian worker. Anything that he can do to crush the work of God, he's all about that. So here Jesus is calling this synagogue a synagogue of Satan because basically in this particular area, in this time, this synagogue was fulfilling the very role that Satan wanted them to fulfill. And that was crushing the gospel, stopping the spread of the gospel. So what does Jesus have to say about this synagogue? Look carefully at the last half of this verse. They say that they are Jews, but they are not. Now, we know that a person isn't a Jew by their heritage. They are a Jew by their belief system and by their faith in what God has said. When you read the book of Romans, and I would encourage you to read the second chapter of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks at length about those who are Jews are not Jews outwardly, but inwardly, with a heart that worships and trusts God. So here, what he's saying to them is that these people, although they claim to be in right relationship with God, were lying. But then he says this, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, let's get this understood. As believers, we have to take the long view. At some point, everyone will recognize the Lord Jesus Christ for who He is. The Scripture is very clear about that. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, speaking of Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. In the long view, I may face persecution, resistance, all of those things now for standing on the name of Christ, but there is coming a time where I will be vindicated. There is coming a time where those who reject me for my faith will see that that faith is true. And that's the reminder to us as believers, when you're going through a tough time of persecution, remember, this is just a short time. This is a flash in the pan. What we have to look forward to is reigning with Christ 
And because we are co-heirs with Christ, as they bow down to Christ, they are recognizing that our faith was genuine and true, and we had the right object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Something else, as we come to verse 10. Now, this is a passage of Scripture where there's some disagreement among Bible teachers. And let me begin by saying this. At Oakland Bible Church, in our doctrinal statement, we hold to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and let me explain what that means. That means that there will be seven years of tribulation. It's going to be described in chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. Our doctrinal statement, and I'm in agreement with our doctrinal statement, says that the church will be snatched up, caught up out of the world prior to that time of tribulation. One of the passages of Scripture that is given in support of this view is right here in this 10th verse of Revelation chapter 3. And what he's saying to this church at Philadelphia is as follows. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, that being said, we also have another important statement in our doctrinal statement. And it is this, we will not separate fellowship with Christians who have a different timing for the Lord's return. Listen, as believers, it's good to study prophecy, it's good to come to conclusions, but do not separate over these issues. Vital for us to understand. I remember years ago, I saw this cartoon, and it showed this guy in a hotel room, and he's sitting on the edge of the bed, and he has a phone right firmly fixed in his hand, and he says, Pastor, my wife just left me because I lost my job and I'm in a hotel room. Remind me, are we pre, mid, or post-tribulational? You know, this is a subject that the Bible talks about, but it's a subject where good people disagree on the timing of the Lord's return. If it were up to me, I would say we are pan-tribulationalists. It'll all pan out. That's one of the going jokes. Or that God would take each person according to their view. That's the one I would really like, but that's not the way it works. So let's look at this passage of Scripture, and let's try and unpack it. Wiest did a great job of translating this verse. And what he shares is this. Because you safeguarded the word by observing it, which to observe requires the endurance which is mine, as for myself, I also will safeguard you, now this is Christ speaking, from the hour of trial which is destined to be coming upon the entire inhabited earth to put to the test those who dwell upon the earth. So this passage of Scripture is speaking of, uh, from this translation and from the understanding of many that the Lord Jesus Christ rescues us from what is described in chapters 6 through 19. And by the way, when we look at this hope, this promise that's given to the church at Philadelphia, bear in mind the book of Revelation was written as a whole. Each church didn't get its own letter. The book of Revelation was given as a a complete revelation of what Christ shares. I would submit to you that probably just prior to the discussion of the terrible things that will happen in chapters 6 through 19, we have this glimpse of hope in chapter 3. 
that God will deliver us from these things. As believers, there is the hope of the rapture. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This passage of Scripture, again, dovetails with this passage in Revelation to talk about God rescuing us, delivering us from the wrath that is to come. And when we get into chapters 5, we we see that there are bowls that will unleash the wrath of God on earth. And so the understanding of many Bible scholars, Bible teachers, is that as believers, we will not go through that. We will be delivered. That's a word of hope, a word of encouragement. But listen, that word of hope and that word of encouragement isn't so we will sit back on our laurels and say, well, I don't have anything to worry about, so I'm just going to mail it in as far as my walk with God. As a matter of fact, when we really understand the grace of God, the deliverance of God, that should motivate us, as we'll see in just a few moments, to live for Him and to purify ourselves. Now, the next part of this passage, verse 11, (coughs) the Lord Jesus Christ continues in this text, and he says this, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize the crown. Immediately after saying to the church of Philadelphia that they would be delivered from the wrath that is coming upon the earth, in verse 11, he makes this simple statement, I am coming soon. Now, this could be also translated, I am coming quickly. Now, Those of you who are mathematicians are sitting there saying, now wait a minute, first century, year 2000. That's not soon. How in the world can Jesus say, I'm coming soon to the church at Philadelphia, and it's 2,000 years later, and he's not here? Well, as we saw earlier uh, in one of the other letters to the churches, God doesn't count time the way we do. If you look at your life, when you were a child, the passage of a week or a month or a year seemed like an eternity, right? Start of the school year, you're looking at it saying, oh man, this is never going to end. This is going to go on forever, right? Then you cross the 60, 70, 80 threshold, and you look and you say, man, they put the calendar on turbocharge. You mean we just had Thanksgiving? Come on. Things are moving way too fast, right? Think of an eternal being. Time would have no relevance, not much measurement. God views time differently than we do. Peter addressed this when he said this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And we observed when we saw this passage earlier with one of the other letters that it's only been a couple of days as far as God is concerned when Christ would return. But then in verse 9, he goes on to say, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has God waited 2,000 years? 
to give people the opportunity to be saved. I'm thankful that God gives people this opportunity because He loves us. He doesn't wish us to perish. The heart of God is that people will come to repentance. This is God giving people more time. You know, this passage is so full of gospel truths when we really boil it down. The idea that Jesus is the one that opens the way for us to have access to the Father. The hope of our salvation that will be delivered from the wrath of God. And here, this promise of coming soon reminds us that, yes, He's coming again, but then when we look at the rest of Scripture, we find that the rest of Scripture reminds us that God is patient in His coming for the purpose of salvation. That message to me shares with those who have not yet come to a personal faith in Jesus Christ, you don't know how much time you have because when he says, I am coming soon, it carries with it the idea of unexpectedly, quickly. And we have no guarantee of how long we'll have. So the encouragement is, get serious about your walk. And if you've never come to Christ, come into that personal relationship with Him to be delivered from these things. And for the Christian, for those of us who have placed our personal faith in Jesus Christ, how should the possibility of Christ's return at any time affect us? The same author of Revelation wrote this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Listen, as Christians, as we look to the return of Jesus Christ, that's incentive, motivation for us to purify ourselves as He is pure. This is how we respond to this statement, behold, I come quickly. The last part of the statement where Jesus talks about the crown being taken. The word that's translated crown is the Greek word stephanos, and that's a word that doesn't refer to a king's crown. It refers to an award that a person got in the athletic games. And what he's saying in this passage is remain faithful so that you can see your life rewarded by God for the faithfulness that you evidenced. It is not talking about heaven as far as a reward. It is talking about a crown that is given to the faithful. And so the implication of this passage of Scripture is this. Look, I can mess up. I could not finish well and lose out on the recognition that my life was in service to Christ. Last part of this passage, and with this we will close quickly. Conquerors who have much to look forward to. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, this language, again, uh, a little confusing for us to understand. In Philadelphia, some of the archaeologists have actually found columns with people's names written on it. It was a way of honoring someone in the community. Perhaps you've noticed when you walk into a hospital, a lot of times there will be placards with people's names on the placards who were generous donors to the hospital. The idea is you are a part of it. You were a part of building this. You were a pillar, if you will, in preparing 
for the kingdom. I love what Howard Hendricks said one time. There's two kinds of pillars in the church. There are those who hold up the church, and there are the caterpillars that just kind of crawl in and crawl out. Our goal is to be a pillar with our name written on that pillar in honor of Jesus Christ. We are to be followers in that way. Last part of the 12th verse goes on to say this. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. You know what it's saying? We, we have the city of God that's going to be our permanent dwelling place, but we are citizens of the city of God. Now, in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. So right now, as far as my standing with Christ, I'm a citizen of heaven. But guess what? My position of being a citizen in heaven right now, my experience will catch up to that at some time. And I will physically, bodily be a part of the new Jerusalem, the city of God, this place of hope. You know what I see as the motivation for sharing this with the church of Philadelphia, take the long view. If I look at the struggles and the difficulties and the disappointments that I'm experiencing in life right now, I can get brought down to a place to where I'm ready to just give up. But when I take the long view and I look and I say, hey, it's tough now, but this is what's in store. This is what God has for me, and He is faithful. That gets you through those difficult times. The church at Philadelphia, faithful church. Not the biggest church, not the most active church, but a faithful one. God wants us to be like this church. No correction for this church, only commendations. May we be people who follow as they follow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that we are to be faithful. Lord God, my prayer is that you will help us to go through those doors that you open faithfully, with great trust, that we might see your work in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.